Good morning, everybody. Really? Let's try. Good morning, everybody. All right, good. And you have to know, and I, I'm willing to own this. People only do that because they're insecure. Like I know it's not like a manipulative thing, and like I'm just insecure. And if I say good morning, you go, uh, then I feel like I'm with my family again. But if you say, oh, that's great, then we're golden. So good morning, almost lunchtime. Um, I am so thankful that my kids have started school. Um, as a parent of elementary school kids, this is my, my favorite week so far of the summer. Love you. Goodbye. Um, but as I was reflecting on the summer, our, uh, our oldest son, Noah, who's going into fourth grade, did something really cool. Um, he went away to Mission Springs uh, summer camp. And I've, uh, I worked at summer, uh, summer camp when I was in college. I've been a youth pastor for a long, long time, and I brought kids to summer camp. And this summer, um, I brought my son to summer camp. And I've always been the awkward kind of just beginning pubescent college kid who's standing waiting for the kid to come to your cabin. You're all excited for them. And these awkward parents come walking down. You're like, will you parents finally beat it? And uh, all of a sudden now I'm the awkward, insecure parent going, here's my son for the week. And uh, I was so nervous to send him off to camp. Even though I wanted to do it, I was excited for him to do it. And uh, he had a great time. It was a great week for Katie and I. So, um, but what's interesting is we picked him up on Saturday and we picked him up, he came to us in swim trunks. And we're like, cool, like a morning swim on Saturday? Is that what you guys do? That's cool. He's like, no, no, no. I've just worn them straight since Tuesday. I'm like, awesome. Love camp. And I kind of knew this was going to be going on because I've been around camp a while. So I even stashed five bucks in his toiletry bag to see if he'd find it. And at the end, I'm like, oh, look at this five bucks. It's like, oh, I wish I would have found that. I'm like, me too. And probably your whole cabin. And uh, he just had a great, great time. But as any... uh, pastor and as a, as, a, as a dad, when you send your kid away to camp, you know, you, you want to know, is it worth the investment? Like, what did they learn? And, uh, and so I grilled them. I mean, I was glad they had a good time and I was glad they was dirty, but I kind of did the whole like, what'd you learn? How's the speaker? You know, did you actually learn anything? And I totally grilled them. I like gave them a full test and I wrote down everything he wrote. And what was amazing is for a fourth grade boy to sit through five nights of camp, he nailed it. He, from memory, knew exactly every night. And it helped that the, the speaker was some cool surfer guy who was in his early 20s with the trucker hat and all good. I was so jealous of him. But he was great. And my kid loved him. And, uh, but I said, so what did you learn at camp? He said, well, he said that the gospel is like a fairy tale. And also I'm like, whoa, what are they teaching at the camp? You know, all my like old school fundy roots are like, what are they doing? And I'm like, don't rip his head off yet. Why don't you listen? You know, be a good dad. So I listened. I'm like, well, tell me what that means. The gospel is a fairy tale. I was like, well, you know, in, a God, in the fairy tale, there's, there's these parts. So it starts out as once upon a time. And in the biblical account, it's in the beginning. Like, okay, I'm tracking with you. And he says, and then there's a big problem. And in our case, the problem's sin. I'm like, all right. And in the fairy tale, there's a, a heroic intervention. And for the Christian, the heroic intervention is the coming of Jesus. And then there's this process of restoration, which is grace. And it ends with happily ever after, which is hope. And the fact that my kid remembered that. I mean, that guy's an awesome speaker. He's going to be a superstar. I'm like, I knew you when. Um, my kid remembered that. And even as I was preparing for this sermon, I couldn't remember because I wasn't really listening. I was more horrified how dirty he was at the time, but I knew there was a nugget there. So I called him again this week, and I said, I, I was away from my son this week, and said, what was that again? And already a month later, he knew exactly the whole thing, right? There, in, once upon a time, there's a problem, heroic intervention, grace and rede- uh, restoration, and happily ever after. And um, that is, it's the gospel in a nutshell. It's scripture in a nutshell. 
And this summer, we've had the privilege to read through the whole New Testament, 60 days. It's been brutal. Um, I took a vacation from that in the middle of summer, I have to confess. Um, but, you know, the whole summer in the scripture, and basically we got to read about how Jesus did this heroic intervention and solved the sin problem and offered us grace and moves us towards restoration. And then it ends in Revelation with a happily ever after. Now, whenever we talk to our students and say, hey, what book of the Bible do you want to read? They always pick Revelation because Revelation is gnarly. It's the weirdest book in the whole Bible. And I mean, it's, as for a young guy, Song of Solomon's is the best one. The second best one is Revelations because there's prostitutes all over the place. You're like, what is this all about? It's got to be great. And uh, so I thought if I'm going to preach from Revelation, I can pick anything I want from Revelation. I started going Revelation 17. Oh, you have a beast, a monster. You have a prostitute. You have Babylon. You have bulls of fire. I'm like, this is going to be great. Right? No, it's weird and doesn't make sense. And as you start studying about it, nobody understands it. And what's interesting, and you just need to understand that it's about life in general and about revelations, but mostly for you as you read scripture, all of us cannot escape this reality that we bring ourselves to the scripture. Our view, our history, our egocentrism, our ethnocentrism. We bring all of that to Scripture. So when we read Revelations, we read it from that lens. And uh, for the people that I've kind of traveled with in the early parts of my Christianity, in my very short season of life compared to like art and stuff, um, what those things meant have really changed. Who's Babylon and who's the great prostitute? When I grew up, it was the commies, man. They were Babylon and they were going to come from the north, like, you know, something out of Daniel or whatever. I don't even know, but I knew it was the commies. And then after the, the fall of the Soviet Union, it was like Iran, you know, in the Middle East and all the Middle East crisis. And that's when you read Revelation, that's what's going on. And then I got really whacked out on some right-wing political stuff. I know it's liberal Hollywood. They're the, right, they're the great prostitute and the harlot. And it was like, but right, that's just me in 20 years of just like my little like white middle-class American perspective, right? And everyone all over the world has their own little perspective of what that is. So instead of being bogged down on that, we're going to skip all the way to the end. Because by the time you get to Revelations 20, 21, and 22, almost all biblical scholars, almost all Christians land and go, however we get there, Satan and all the demons, all of death gets thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus comes and restores all things for all time. Amen. So we're going to spend a little time in that. And at first I was all excited to do uh, this passage in Revelations 21. And, um, and like all things in Scripture, there are some really good, tender words. And if you are in a place and you need a message of hope, then I really hope that you hear this message that Jesus has for us through his word. It is probably one of the most beautiful passages of all of Scripture, at least for me. But as I studied with it and as I wrestled with it and as we've been trying to do this meaning significance response, there has to be some takeaway. And as I wrestled with the response, there was a little bit of butt kicking involved, at least for me and maybe for you too. So hopefully there's a little something for everybody. So if you have your Bible, um, let's turn to Revelations 21. And we're going to go through this little uh, rhythm that we've been doing all summer long, which is looking at the meaning, which means we just don't open up scripture and go, I like this verse and it means this. We actually want to understand the context and what it meant, the person who wrote it, what they're trying to communicate. Then we understand the significance, kind of the spiritual truths and the realities of what this, con this passage is all about. And then we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word. So we want to figure out ways that we can actually begin to implement what we've learned. And so that's the response we've been doing all summer. This will be the last time we do it um, now, but I'm sure as we preach in the future, you'll kind of get this glimpse of, oh, that's what they're doing. 
So with that, let's, uh, if you'd read with me, uh, Revelations chapter 21, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the, whole city, the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word that you wanted us to know that your heart for us, that your heart for humanity and for all of creation is to be with us. And that someday there will be a time when we are with you and you will wipe away our tears and you will heal our pain and our brokenness and you will make us new. And for that hope, God, we are eternally grateful. As we wrestle with the scriptures, as we wrestle with how to apply that to our lives, God, I pray that we would not miss the reality that you love us, long to be with us, long to transform us, and long to use us for your glory. Amen. All right, let's go to lunch. (laughs) Pretty good, I know. So good. Okay, we are going to hop through Revelations 21. And uh, so we have to start with the meaning. And what in the world does this mean? That the city of God, the new Jerusalem's coming down from heaven onto earth. And what's interesting is there was a season in, uh, in the evangelical world for sure, but there was a season that um, this idea that we as Christians, like God is going to just crush us, the world. It's going to crush the world. It's just so dirty and gross. And we have to hold up and be separated and stay pure because if we step out of our house for a second, we are going to get crushed. And this picture that we have from Scripture is not this picture of Christians hold up, hold fast, because if you step out of your house and step out of line, you're going to get crushed. What we have is this picture of Scripture is that God longs to bring his city onto earth to be with his people. And what's interesting is this idea of the new Jerusalem, it's not that Jerusalem, like the city that's over on the other part of the world, is going to be picked up on earth, they're going to slap gold everywhere, and it's going to come down onto, onto the earth again. But it's a picture because it's, it's a picture of who God is and what he longs for. The new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem is the housing point of the temple. The, like there was a tabernacle, like a tent, and then it became a temple. And that was the place that the Holy Spirit resided among his people. And it was very clear. God is holy and pure. You're not yet, but there's a system and process and way in which you can kind of be near that. But God is holy. You're not yet, but his heart and intention was to be with his people. And then later on in the New Testament, we find out that we as Christians are, be, are actually the rocks. We're the rocks of the temple. We are part of the temple. There's other parts of Scripture say when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when the new Jerusalem comes to earth, it's basically a picture of the culmination 
of the church, the church universal, Christians from all time, from every part of the country, from every part of the world, from every era of all of human history will be gathered together in one place at one time, giving all honor and glory to God. And what a beautiful picture that is. And so he says the new Jerusalem coming down, that's what it says. And he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And what's interesting is when I think back on my own spiritual journey and it's still in me, I live with this fear that if I get too far out of line, God is just going to, he is just going to crush me. He's going to be like, really, Ben? Still? All right, I forgive you. And then I'll like screw up again. Just like, really, Ben? And at some point I have this fear that he's going to be so exasperated with me, he is going to crush me. And at first I'm like, why do I have that feeling? I mean, I grew up presby for crying out loud. Like I have no like fundy guilt and shame in my life at all. Like I'm free from that. It's super great. But it's still in me to have this angst that I feel like God is displeased with me. And the reality is, is because we're made in the image of God, we know that there's something not right between us and God. Every culture in all of the world knows that there's something not right between them and God, and they found different ways to solve it. But that is not the picture we have at Scripture. The picture we have in Scripture is that God longs to be with his people. It started at the very in the beginning when he created the earth, he created Adam and Eve, he longed to walk with them in the garden. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, we see that there's this picture of Adam and Eve hiding and God wandering around the garden saying, where are you? And the implication is that the intention was for God to be their God and to be their people and to walk around in the garden together, to have this intimate relationship. That was God's dream from the beginning. And then because sin entered the world, there was, we are hiding from God. We are always running and fleeing from God. But God wanted to make sure that he was, that he longed to be with us. And so at the end of Exodus, you know, when Moses goes to Mount Sinai and he gets to the law of the Lord and he figures out how the priest would address and all that kind of stuff, at the very, very, very end of Exodus, Moses builds a tabernacle the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And no one could go in it because they weren't holy, but God wanted to know, listen, you're not holy, you're not perfect, but I have not abandoned you. I want to be with you. And then throughout all the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, they're looking for this time when God is going to show up and be with his people. And then in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Then the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling upon us. And, and the fancy word is, is this word, it says he tabernacled among us. And John was trying to make clear that the tabernacle that was in Exodus and the temple that was in 2 Samuel, I mean, 2 Kings or, you know, somewhere in there, um, that that tabernacle and temple, Jesus, is the culmination of that. The word became flesh. God came to be with us. That is God's heart and intention from the beginning. And then Jesus in John 14 says, you know what, but I'm going to leave you at one point. So I'm with you in the flesh, but soon I'm going to give you your Holy Spirit. And in Acts, the Holy Spirit comes. And we find out that we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so God is with us and with his people. But this picture we have in Revelation is that the culmination of all things is that God is going to be with us. He is for us. He has spent all of Scripture trying to communicate. He wants to be with us. And at the end of all things, he will be our God and we will be his people. And then he goes on to say, um, they, that he says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And all through Scripture, everywhere in Scripture, we see that sin and rebellion as this ripple of death. 
Paul just summed it up in Romans, says, for the wages of sin is death. But everywhere in scripture you read, whenever there is a rebellious, selfish decision made by anybody, the ripples just cause death and destruction everywhere, all over the place. And uh, what we find in this passage of scripture, that not only will God be with us, but the, the consequences of sin will be done away with forever. And as Christians, we go, yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we get this idea that the punishment of sin is wiped away. Oh, that's super great. But there's the ripple effect. The consequences of those sins are with us. We know our brokenness and our sin and rebellion and the death and destruction that's caused. And we lean forward to this point in time when Jesus will not just forgive us our sins, but will fully heal us and transform us, right? What an awesome picture. There will be this time when there's no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. And then the last thing is that, um, that God, he will establish his authority once and for all. And the first time I read this, I just love this passage. Whenever I'm having a bad day or someone's being mean to me, I'm like, God, one day this is going to be true. And I kind of forget about this last little part here, but it says and he, that he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And we can't miss that point that in order for the city of God to come down, in order for God to actually heal us and wipe away every tear, that Jesus has to establish his kingdom, which means he's in charge. The throne of God is established. And he, because he's fully in charge, can make all things new. My son loves making Legos. If I go in his room and mess with the Legos, it is like death and destruction between the two of us. I, I've learned I don't mess with this stuff, even if I'm trying to be funny. He is the Lego master. He makes things. And he has the pleasure to break them apart and put them back together. He is the ruler of that little domain. And at the end of all things, Jesus establishes that we are simply clay. He is the potter and we are the clay. At the end of all things, he will take us who are being crafted by him. He will take us who are being rebel rebellious towards him and put them all together and establish his domain, uh, dominion and authority. So when I think of the meaning of this, when I look at God, what do you have to say for us out of Revelation 21? It's actually some pretty good news. It is, man, that God longs to be with us. The whole testimony of scripture is that. And at the end of all things, that will be true. And when we are in the presence of God fully, the consequences and ripples of sin and death will be done with forever. And we will gladly live under the authority of Jesus for all time. And that is good, time, good meeting right there. And so we think about, well, that's great. And that was a good Bible study. But what does that mean uh, for me? And what is, how does that actually begin to move towards us right now? Because that's going to happen someday down the road. Like, whether you do nothing or everything, that will happen separate from us. But in the meantime, what do we do? And I cannot, as I was thinking about this, I could not keep getting away from this memory that I had when I was younger. I was uh, 19 and I worked at a camp similar to what Noah went to. And uh, for whatever reason, God cursed me and I barely even hit puberty. I was this chubby, awkward 19-year-old. And, um, but I went to UCSB and so I thought I was cool and I, I didn't know how awkward I was until I saw pictures later. But that... Um, but I, I was this kid and I loved God. By the end of high school, I was kind of figuring out, okay, I think this Christian thing's for me and I'm going to get after it. And so like a dummy, I'm like, I really went after it. In college, I went after it with Jesus. And part of what I did is I went and worked at a summer camp to love kids, like the college kid who loved my kid. And, uh, and there I met Katie. So when we were 19, we met 
and it was great. And um, she had a group of friends, I had a group of friends, and we started like talking on the phone and writing letters and email just started, so we emailed a little bit. And uh, we started kind of falling in love a little bit. And uh, as we started falling in love, we're like, hey, let's, let's date and let's make this thing happen. And, uh, and both of us at this point in our college career, we're like pretty serious about our faith. We're like, man, we really love Jesus. And we're going to actually try this thing out. We're going to try to honor him with our relationship. So we, kind of, we made this commitment. We're not going to sleep together until we get married. We just made this commitment because we were 20. And it was easy, too, because we were a long-distance relationship. How easy it's to, to make that commitment, you know? See you never, and someday it'll all work out. And so, so but we love Jesus. We want to honor him, and so we made this commitment. And, um, and what happened is we dated, and we wrote letters, and we fell in love, and it was super great. But man, by the last year, um, you know, I'm, I'm, now I have high tea. I'm a college kid, and I'm I'm ready for stuff, you know? And, uh, and, and so I was ready for this next level of intimacy, but I made this decision with God. And so our, we would go on these, like every six weeks, we, I'd go to her school or she'd come to my school. And basically we try to set world records in kissing. You're like, well, we can kiss. So let's just do that all the time. And so we, all the time we would just kiss all day, every day, knowing that soon we would have the culmination of intimacy and be so great. Now, what didn't help my cause is I lived with a group of uh, 12 other Christian college kids who are in their different levels trying at least to strive towards purity. And so for, you get a bunch of 12 Christian guys all living together trying some version of purity. Well, if you ask them, man, what's it like to be married? Well, what it means to be married is, man, you, you, you try to be pure, but then when you're married, man, you just get to have sex all day. Now you might eat meals here and there and you might have to go to work, but basically other than that, it's just sex all day, every day. And we're like, yes. And so those guys were helping shape me as I'm trying to like stay pure and take cold showers every time I saw Katie and knowing that one day soon we'd be married and we would live happily ever after. Now, we got married and are living happily ever after and that's great, but that first year of marriage was a little bit of a train wreck for us, right? Because, well, A, I was immature for a whole bunch of reasons. But what I realized looking back is I created a false version of Katie. We had a long distance relationship. I liked making out. She liked making out. There's parts of our relationship that I loved a lot. And I thought at one point, I'm going to get the fullness of that and that'll be great. But in that process, I forgot that she's a real person with real emotions and real anxieties and has a desire for her future and actually doesn't like vegetables and like hiking and certain things that I, she did for me when we dated because she loved me. And I'm like, oh, it was different. It was horrifying. And we spent our first couple of years going, oh, this is the real you. This is the real me. Well, now we're working it out. And it's been great ever since, right, Poof? Yeah, so great. Um, But the reason why I tell that is because when I think of my own spiritual journey, when I think of my own walk with Jesus, and when I think of our students and they head off to winter camp and summer camp and have these experiences, really, we're like these immature dating people. We take the best of what God can offer us. And we think, man, someday when God comes and establishes all things, it'll be the best that God offers us, and it'll be that all the time. Right? When you think of our friendships, we just like people because they give us certain things. But once it starts getting hard, we're like, oh, I don't really like that. But this picture that we have of God, when God comes and lives among us, dwells among us, it isn't just to him to dole out the blessings that we want. It's for true intimacy. It's a picture of true intimacy. The true version of me and the true version of God are joined together. Not me, God loves me, here's all the worst of me, you know that, and God, I just want your blessings. It's all of me, God, and all of who God is. I can't just take his blessings and his grace and his mercy, which I take all the time, but he is pure and he is holy. He actually has something he wants me to do. He's a dad. He's a consuming fire. He's all these things. I can't just pick the ones I like. And if I'm going to be truly intimate with God, I have to take all of who God is. 
And so one of the things that I need to work towards, that we need to work towards, is we need to move towards intimacy with God. So when God shows up at the end of the time, he goes, oh God, you're going to wipe away my tears, that's great. And he's like, yep, and there's some other things we're going to deal with. Right? We want to deal with that on the front end. We want to be intimate with God so we get the fullness of him, his blessing, his healing, and even some of his harder words as well. It's also a picture of healing. That how cool that Jesus actually heals us. Now, the problem is that we, maybe not we, but I am for sure, and at least the people that I talk to are so selfish and self-absorbed. And right now I could say, who are the three people who have hurt you the most in your life? And right now you're like, this person, this person, this person. We all have three. I have like more than that, but let's just pick three. We all have this group of people who have so wronged us. And so wronged us that the actual trajectory of our life is different because they hosed us. Their sin, their rebellion crushed us. And we know exactly who they are. And this message is such an important message of healing because at the end of all things, Jesus is healing us. But there's only so much we can get in this sinful and broken world of healing, right? That my leg is so broken and there's much physical therapy and different things. I, I can only get it limping so well. But at the end of all things, Jesus is going to come and reset my leg once and for all, and I will be the healed version that God has for me. Now, here's the awful part. You actually are one of those three people for somebody else. You actually are part of the crushing mechanism for somebody else. Not for their spiritual formation, but because your sin, your selfishness, your self-righteousness, whatever, has so crushed somebody else that Jesus thankfully will heal them from you as well. And if I'm thinking about what is the significance of this, and Jesus is ultimately going to heal me from all the bad stuff that happened to me, part of the significance needs to be me leaning into me offering restoration and healing to the people that have wronged me. I love AA. Right out of the gate, figure out who you've wronged. Make amends. Get after Right out of the gate. We can't even move towards healing until you own your garbage. And as Christians, we have to own our garbage and think about it, if that person that so wronged you came to you and said humbly and broken, in a broken way, I am so sorry, will you please forgive me? Not wanting to be reinvited to Christmas, but just asking for your forgiveness, you would do it. It's in us. We're made in the image of God to do that. So we have to turn the corner and be a part of that as well. And lastly, um, as far as significance, we, we, Jesus is going to transform us. He is the ruler of all things. He is the potter and we are the clay. And he is going to mold us and make us into what he wants us to be. And we can do it willingly, or we can do it in Psalms. It talks about you're a horse and you're guided either by the bit um, or, or by the sight. And God wants us to be people who are guided by the sight. Oh, this is where you want me to go. But at the end of the day, God will yank the bit and get us where we need to go. Um, Art uh, gave us a really incredible thing to think about in our pastoral retreat, but he called it this idea of this process of repentance. We get this process of salvation, process of healing, but there is this process of repentance. And as we as a church, we need to be people who are in the process of repentance, which means you don't just get cleaned up enough so that you can be an acceptable person at Marine Covenant, right? Just stop doing this enough and then you're good. And if you're a brand new Christian, we'll give you like six months to figure it out. And, uh, and if you've been a Christian a long time and you goof up, then you're out. But for the most part, like, just get to this level. Like, unfortunately, that's people's impression of the church, but that is not the church. The church, our mission statement is moving towards Christ, which means it doesn't matter where you're at, where your starting point, but we are asking that our church be people who are continually moving towards Christ. 
And the only way we move towards Christ is when we move towards Christ, we have to say, God, what is the offensive thing in me? What is the thing in me in this next season that you need to mess with? And to repent. And thankfully, God gives us just what we can handle. We always thought about sin and suffering, but I think it's just because we're immature. We don't know how to deal with other things. It's like, but we want to, whatever this thing in your life is right now, God is asking you to repent of it, to work it out because there's 10,000 other things down the road that you have to work on. Everyone in your family is like, please work on that thing so you can work on these other things, right? We have to be continually working. And as a church, at least I know for our, our pastoral staff and our leadership team, we do not care where you are at. We don't care how far outside the bounds of orthodoxy or your life or your lifestyle. That is not our concern. Our concern, though, is are you willing and actively moving towards Christ in this process of repentance? Okay, so lastly, what are we going to do with this? If the reality is that God longs to be with us, longs to be intimate with us, longs to transform us and heal us and heal those that we've broken— and to make all things new, what is our part of it? So I came up with a couple of things that, I, that God's been really convicting me on, and maybe some of these will be helpful for you too. So in order to experience this picture of intimacy, healing, and transformation, we must submit to Jesus and his plan. That's a hard word. I would so much rather to stop and go, someday God will be with me, and he will wipe my tears away, which is so true. But that only happens when he establishes his authority and his reign. And even though we're not there yet, the Christian's call is to live in this already and not yet. We are a part of expanding God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, which means until Jesus makes that complete, we must be in the process of submitting our lives to Jesus, be open to his healing and transformation, so what is that next level? And if you're like, I'm great with Jesus, and you have not thought, man, ask someone in your family, and they will tell you right away. But when you think of your devotional life, one of the things that we're trying to work towards is having a reflective prayer life. Our prayer life isn't just, God, 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 I need this, I need this, I need this, help me with this. But a reflective prayer life, that part of our spiritual diet is, God, search me, test me, know me, reveal any offensive way in me, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. The only way we move forward in a church for as complex and diverse as we are is if we own together that we are for Jesus moving towards him, not satisfied staying where we are, working on the little small thing that he has for us right now and taking steps and encouraging one another to do that. The second is, a, I think, is a good news and is kind of too noble for me, but maybe great for you. But this reality that we are the body of Christ. Like, we're not just a church and we just don't hang out, but we are Christ's, Jesus' plan to establish the kingdom of earth, of kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven until the day when he culminates everything. Like, we are the plan. We aren't just supposed to be Christians who live and try so hard not to keep sinning that one sin, not to keep trying to wreck shop with everyone. Like, oh God, I don't want to do that. That is not the picture. We are Christ's ambassadors, not just as ambassadors. He has given us the mark of being his daughter, of being his son. We have been given power through the Holy Spirit, and we are God's people in this moment, in this time. 
I love how Jeff says it. You are you. You are the you. You're the only you in your world. Like you think, oh, someone else needs to come, someone else can have to fix my marriage and be a nicer husband. No, I'm the only husband Katie has. Like I got to fix it. My junk, I have to fix. My kids aren't going to get another dad. The people at work in this season are, these are them. Like I am me. And I can either be me and go, oh, I'm just a wretch and life's awful and I'll keep trying hard not to be awful. Or I can have a noble calling of Jesus' very own son, a very own daughter. And he has called me specifically to this moment, to this place, to this group of friends, to be his ambassador, to let the world know in word and in deed that God longs to be with them, that God longs to heal them, and that God longs to transform them. That is our noble calling. And the last one is just a simple question for you. Where can you specifically work towards healing and restoration? It's a great thing to think about. And when you think of your normal life, it's not that noble. I'm sorry. It's, I, I wish my life was more exciting and something, but it's, it's your life. Like for me, I am a husband. I am a dad. I am an employee. I'm a pastor. I run a silly dad's group at San Ramon. Uh, I live on my street and I drive slowly. Those are like the things I bring to the table, okay? That's me. And so in all those things, I want to bring the best version that God has for me to be his ambassador so that Revelations 21 happens in my family, at my work, at my kids' school, in my extended family, and when people pass me on the freeway. That's what I want to do. And you all have those things for you as well. So my prayer for all of us is that this would not just be a nice little scripture we put on our wall, but would be a transformative scripture that would mold and shape us. Let me read it one more time, and then we'll wrap this up. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I thank you that you have not given up on me. You've not given up on us. And there's actually nowhere in your word that says that that is who you are. You graciously and gladly leave the 99 and run after me. You run after the one because your heart is to be with us. And at the end of all things, you will be our God and we will be your people. At the end of all things, you will wipe all the tears from our eyes. And as we're living in the already and not yet, there are so many tears, so much mourning, so much brokenness. And God, we ask that you would hurry up and bring your healing. 
But until you show up fully, until you've healed fully, until you've fully established your reign on earth as it is in heaven, God, we are here, your people, your church, your children. Use me. Use us. May we be your ambassadors who are bringing the good news of your love, of your mercy, of your healing, and of your transformation. May we be about expanding your kingdom right here in our little, little tiny lives on earth as it is in heaven. And let us close with the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. He said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen and amen.